everyone. In this episode of History Unloaded with Danny and Ashley, we decided that we should do something a little bit more fun because we talked about how Winchester ate companies and then how companies ate Winchester for a while. And we just realized that like right now the world sucks and people are being really mean to us. And so we're going to have fun. And you can like it or not. <laughs> people are mean to us. Well, I should uh, say not people, person, because lots of people message me that they think we're great. I, I appreciate that. I wish those people would sometimes maybe message me because I'm just sitting over here like I don't even know if people listen. All right. So you heard that. If you like our podcast, did you see what I did there? Yes. <laughs> uh, if you like our podcast, stop just telling me, tell Danny to even though his social media is all private so that he makes it more difficult for himself. Oh, my Instagram's public again. Oh, it is? Is it yeah. dmichael388? Oh, <laughs> yes, it is. Okay, now it's it's about time. to go private. Yeah, I tag you all the time. It was easier when it was better gun curator. Yeah, I, I should go back to it. Yeah. Oh, I should probably also announce because the announcement's gone out. I am also now consulting for an auction house. You went to the dark side. I went to the dark side. Um, right now, if you're familiar with auction houses, Cowens, which was a firearms auction house for a long time, uh, merged with a fine art and fashion company auction house out of Chicago named Heinemann's. And so... I'm actually really excited about it. They managed to put together a really awesome team. Uh, Tim Carey, who's got 40 years of experience selling high-end sporting firearms and was with Griffin and Howe, is running the department. Tim Prince is a consultant as well. And so it's, it's exciting. I've been doing a lot of provenance digging and getting to actually look at artifacts, which I surprisingly didn't do a lot in my role in a museum. So it's fun. I'm just consulting for them. So I'm just doing a few days a month, but... I'm enjoying it so far, but so yeah, I, I went to the dark side. All right. If they, if they need a, if you would like to do an episode about what the auction world is like, they will have to sponsor it. Yes. Actually, that would be a fun thing to like, <laughs> to, to talk about like the differences between like how auctions treat old objects and how fire and how museums do it. But yeah, no, I think it'd be really interesting because when I went on my first visit to look at a firearm, it was definitely, there were a lot of things in the museum world that I was doing. And then there were a lot of things that I needed to do differently. And I thought that was interesting. So I'm happy to talk about that, but I would say give me a few months so that I actually have something other than actually, that I looked at. <laughs> Not like two weeks of work experience, basically. Yeah. I mean, I'm basically an expert now. <laughs> I think that should be our tagline is we're basically experts. We're basically like experts. We're basically like experts. Yeah. Um, All right. So today's topic, we've just been vamping. I would like to point out that it is 6.50 my time. So we did this for you guys because uh, I don't like to get up that early, but yes, this was this one is a true for the listeners episode because we could not get us get on the schedule for this this week, and the only time slot left open was six thirty Ashley's time, and yeah, we're like, no, we're giving them content. Like, yeah, I actually said, Danny, can we take a week off? And he said, and I was no. like, nope, we're not doing it. <laughs> <laughs> so today we wanted to talk about our favorite historic ignition system to shoot. So we've talked about a lot about 
you know, historic guns and things that are fun to shoot. But we always like end up talking about like the M1 Garand or, you know, Springfield 1903. So yeah, we're because- rolling it back even further because a lot of people have fired those firearms, at least in my circles, which I guess are biased, a biased, you know, survey of people. But we got the great opportunity when we were rebuilding the museum to fire a hand cannon, a matchlock, a wheel lock, and a flintlock, which I mean, I've fired lots of flintlocks, but those are really cool ignition systems. And some of them were surprising because neither of us had ever fired them before. And so I thought we could talk about a little bit about the history of those and then also what it was like to fire them and also and also is my new filler word and also um which one we like the best and why yeah i I think that's a that's a good way to frame it and yeah we we normally end up talking like having this conversation about like what's our favorite old gun to shoot which is a different question because obviously i shoot some world war ii stuff and i enjoy that but in terms of ignition systems center fire is the most boring Anything, in my opinion, anything once you get to metallic cartridges is kind of boring and percussion ignition, which we're leaving off of this because we're doing external combustion rather than internal combustion. And I guess percussion's still fun because you got like a little cap that you got to put on it. But we're trying to focus on the boom and the flash from the outside because that's just something that a lot of people get to shoot in their lives. So are we trying to like rank these or are we just saying, in my own, like, I enjoyed this one. I can't quantify it. The historian in me says we need to just go in historical chronological order, okay. and then we can riff after that. Got so it. Do you want to take away the hand cannon history? Yeah, I can do that one. So obviously the very first types of firearms were like, there, I just did it again. We'll, we'll explain what we're talking about at the end of the episode. But so the earliest firearms are pretty much metal tubes with a touch hole and you stick some sort of like a hot iron or burning match cord or what Gary described to us as like a sparkler, which I'm only slightly thinking he was messing with us. <laughs> but um, you, you ignite a touch hole that has a little bit of priming powder and fire an iron tube. Like that is your earliest firearms if we're not talking about fire lances and i don't know how those work because i've yeah, never shot and one. also there were repeaters yes multi-barrel ones so yeah there's multi-barrel versions fun, sure <laughs> so however complicated you can imagine an iron tube that is how complicated they get or brass i guess sometimes um, well and oh sorry go ahead i was just gonna say and the one we got a chance to fire was pretty short it was um you know because there's all variations and this was like some with really super short barrels there are some that are pretty long some fired by hand some held on like a staff there's all kinds of variation in the historical record the one we shot was i don't know like maybe uh 16 it was not that long the overall length was probably under 30 under 30 inches if you've been to the museum, it was kind of like the four barrel one we have in length, mm-hmm. but with a single barrel and no, no, I mean, there was a little bit of a handle, if I remember correctly. It had that. Yeah. Th- it there had was like a little bit, but it was a wooden crude. piece that came down, but it wasn't a hold on to it, you know, outside of your body. <laughs> right. And so, and 
we should be clear the ones we're talking about were reproductions we i have not shot an original i don't think anybody would there are people that shoot like 18th century guns that i know of but that's as far back as i've heard anybody going yeah Um, and that's like late brown besses like yeah i feel like that's questionable to fire an original hand cannon especially with their rarity like right so we fired a repro and it had a like it was bolted or fixed to a wooden quasi stock and the advice (laughs) we were given when we fired it was to like tuck it under our arm so the wooden end of the gun was like tucked into our armpit and then we held just behind the where the iron and wood met and then we were holding a match that we with our other hand to touch to the touch hole that one in my head was going to be super scary but it was not the scariest gun i fired that day no it was it was pretty cool it wasn't very exciting in terms of recoil i guess uh, yeah. It didn't really have one because it was in your armpit. I was a little concerned about that. And I also would like to point out that I don't, I guess it was late in the day. And so I just decided that my hair should be down. And in hindsight, that was a pretty poor choice. Yeah. And <laughs> My hair was up for everything else, but that one, it was not. And maybe this is because it's a repro and somebody like modern day built this thing and had some thought of ergonomics or maybe people back in the day cared about how things felt to hold to. Um, but it was, it was, I would call it comfortable. It was comfortable. Um, and then I, I'm trying to remember the delay. If there was much of a delay in that it. one was almost no delay. That one was not a delay really at all. Cause it's, you know, you're holding essentially a lit match to gunpowder. So it is, as soon as it touches, it goes off. I mean, the delay is essentially the time it takes the priming powder to flash. Yeah. Which is not long. So the next ignition system is going to contradict your statement about maybe they cared about how it feels to fire the gun because this one just essentially throws that to the wind because the stocks are often really weird. They look cool, but they don't exactly fit your shoulder. And that is the next ignition system, which is the match lock, which was developed uh, sometime in the 1400s. <laughs> I like that ambiguous date, sometime in the 1400s. Great history, great history. <laughs> well, you know, with these early firearms, there's so yeah. many different countries that claim to be the first. Like, let's not even get into flintlocks with that. There was no Ian in 1400s Germany to make videos about it, so we don't know. <laughs> Exactly. So he didn't go to 1400 shot show and like riff on oh, these guys were, we just went to a booth and they were kind of nice, but their product sucks. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure there was somebody, but nobody was listening. He was probably at the bar. It's probably buried in like some medieval library, like his book of riffing on gun makers of the day. Anyways, this yeah. is a digression by a lot. So the matchlock technology is more advanced than just a hole in a gun and a lighter, but not quite. But it's it's an interesting thing because there's a lot of different variations on this as well. But the most stereotypical, I guess, is the it's you basically have a piece of slow burning rope. And a lot of times both sides would get lit because you know, just in case, which is a little scary. And you had this serpentine like mechanism, which starts, which is basically the start of what's called the cock, which is then what's called the hammer. I did good. 
you, you did great. Um, and so you get this serpentine and you basically hook the burning rope into that. And then you hold with your hand, the other side of the burning rope, not the actual burning part. You know, you hold it with your hand as you hold the stock. And I'm talking about a long arm right now. And on the more advanced match locks, you do have a trigger, but the trigger doesn't operate like crisply like you would a modern gun it operates as a lever so you press that down and that allows the serpentine to drop into a pan more modern a pan that has powder and ultimately fire the gun um some things that happen is that oftentimes <laughs> the burning rope flies out of the serpentine after firing so you just basically have this lit match swinging by your feet which was interesting and then the other thing with and Danny I don't know if I've ever seen a match lock where the serpentine goes away from your face I feel like maybe I have but essentially this often goes at your face right so it's it's like and this is why this was the scariest one to shoot because every time you fire there is a like a lit open match headed right at your eye line. And maybe that's because I'm being too presentist and trying to shoot it with my eyes open, but I could not shoot that gun with my eyes open. The hundreds were shooting it with their eyes, but they were like, they can't do it. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe they were, they were like volley firing with those things. And so it's just like level, look away and pull the trigger. Maybe they had 1400s rec specs. Maybe they did. They had some excellent eye pro back then because like it is very hard to not instinctively just flinch when there's a match inches away from your eyeball, even though I had safety glasses on. And as Ashley said, sometimes the match would like fling out, which if you think about it, if you're a musketeer with one of these things and like you're wearing your next charges of gunpowder and there's just a match flying around that gunpowder, like it's in containers, but to me, the thought is just still really weird. Well, and is this, this is going to go to my ignorance with military clothing, because uh, they used to be naked when they fought war, but I think when fire, by the time firearms okay. came about, they were like, no, they had pants idea. by then. Uh, they had pants by then. But a lot, I, I imagine that maybe cotton, uh, which I know is a little bit later, but what I could think is you're probably more likely to light your, your friend on fire next to you. <laughs> I think probably musketeers, my understanding of like gear on the battlefield then is probably a lot of these dudes would have been wearing like heavy leather coats. Well, that seems better. Yeah. Also terrible if it's hot. Yeah, it seems awful to fight in, but that's like decent protection against a range of different weapons they might face. But I'm also way, I'm not an armor guy, so I don't know. Armor or... I don't what know. Is, they were still using armor up through the wheel lock, I think. Yeah, I mean, armor is still around, but not everybody's wearing it. And they transition to like lighter and lighter stuff until they get down to like a realistic defensible thing is you wear a heavy leather buff coat. But and I'm way out of my depth. But I will say in terms of armor, and while I can't identify the various eras of armor, armor is not as cumbersome as people think it is. I've okay. had children's armor on and you can move i did the robot in it at the art institute of chicago you have a lot of movement and a lot of armor um, from a certain time period actually stops right below your knee 
-hmm. So you've got that flexibility and it's lighter than you think. Um, and so if you had armor and there's proof armor that you see from this time period where they're firing balls at armor. And I'm really hoping that there wasn't a person behind that because ouch, but you can see that there's barrel, there's proof armor that exists to show that they were trying to test the effectiveness of armor with firearms. I was about to say, oh, of course they wouldn't have shot it while somebody wore it. But then I remember that photo of like that one dude that invented body armor in like the 20s or 30s and then like toured the country and let people shoot him. And I'm like, okay, maybe they did. Yeah. Or like the more the closer to reality and the more mortifying of this was the person was probably not a free person. Ooh. Was anyone history. in the military free though back then? <laughs> Mercenaries? They're just getting paid. <laughs> It's not really like standard infantry, but the matchlock in and of itself is a pretty, it's really cool to look at in slow motion. And this is where I contradict the comfort level because so many of those matchlocks have these weird, like almost triangular, like the, like the, the flat side of a triangle. Yeah. And it's not, it doesn't contour necessarily to your shoulder. It's just right. Kind yeah. Of I know what you're saying. Line. So interesting. Maybe it was, we'll, get back to, we'll get back to that experience at the end because I'm going to talk about the matchlock at the end of here. Maybe that was because like, I have a larger shoulder, so it was easier for me to get behind that gun like I was supposed but to. Jimmy, people were smaller back then. That's true. I would have been a giant. I think I just would have been made king instantly if they saw me. <laughs> but you're like, you're, you're a giant, but you're slender. So... You might be the first iteration of Slenderman. Harsh. That was super rude. So rude. <laughs> so uh, the next uh, the next technology we shot, and I'll let you take this away, Danny, was the wheel lock. The wheel lock was a ton of fun, although maybe one of the more frustrating ones because it was trouble to get it igniting reliably, which I think was probably not as big of an issue for originals. As ours was. Yeah, we had to add like tin foil or something. Yeah, we had to do something weird to it. I, I don't totally remember. But again, this one was actually really comfortable to shoot because the grip on old wheel lock pistols is, I mean, it doesn't look like modern pistol grips, but it points pretty naturally and it felt pretty good to shoot. And um, all of these looked really cool in slow-mo because of course we were filming these for the videos that are in the museum now. So we were filming them at super high speed. Um, the hand cannon looks amazing because there's like this jet of flame that comes back out of the ignition port before it fires. The match lock, you know, you can see like all the sparks fly when it ignites. The wheel lock is super cool because as the wheel turns, you see all the individual sparks that like that ignite as that happens. And then you see all the like you can tell when the main charge ignites. Um, when the primer charge ignites, when the barrel, like, or when the bullet leaves the barrel, like you can see all that in the high speed, which is really, really cool. Um, it was a comfortable gun to shoot. If it had been, if it had worked really better, this would be like a contender for my favorite one to shoot. And the lock time when it did work on a, on the wheel lock was really short. Um, it wasn't as fast as I would say the match lock was you know, it's this balance, like the time from when you started squeezing the trigger to when the gun fired on the wheel lock was shorter, but the time from when the powder ignited seemed quicker to me on the match lock. 
So like, oh, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say the match lock has this super long trigger, you know, because it is that it's not really a trigger. It's a lever. And so the, like, think of the mushiest trigger you've ever fired on like a modern gun. And it's multiple times longer than that trigger. Mushiest. And it's people use that to describe triggers that the wheel lock trigger does not disengage the cocking mechanism, which by the way, is still pointing at your face, but it doesn't fall. You put it down before you're ready to fire. It disengages the, the, the wheel mechanism and it's crisper. Yeah, it was, it was, it was actually quite a crisp trigger and um, the ignition was very quick when it ignited. The problem was getting the priming charge to ignite for us. Yeah, and the other kind of pain in the ass with the wheel lock is an external device to wind. Right, reloading is, there's more to it. I think it's like pens. I'm sure it's like pens where you just keep losing them. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I was like, everybody's... You don't have a pen, but much more deadly. So like in the camp of wheel lock armed soldiers in the 1600s, there's like this communal basket of like pens at the desk that they just like pick up a key. And they're like, hey, I had a key. I really liked it. Who took it? Yeah. And I feel like they probably were tied to your clothing, which yeah, made you with pens. Yeah. There were probably like compartments on their gear for extra like spare keys. And stuff yeah. Like that. And but- so then we skipped over snap hances michelais which is a a name that gets uh used on that type of flintlock after it's Mm -hmm. developed uh but we skipped right to true flintlocks which are developed in the early 1600s and this one i had fired like plenty of times in the past and they get smart with the flintlock in some ways and they put the cocking mechanism away from your face because it is dropping when you press the trigger and so firing the wheel lock I think that's got the slowest lock time maybe the match lock I guess because of the long trigger pull but I I would say to me it was the flintlock there was the biggest delay from like I I literally just said that (laughs) I, I thought you were saying the wheel lock had those. No, I moved on to flintlocks. Like, Did you not hear me start with the 1600s? Continue. <laughs> we agree is what we learned. We're great communicators. Mm-hmm. We're professional communicators. <laughs> um, so yeah, so it's got the biggest delay, but we always talk about that delay, but it's negligible when you are behind the gun. Yeah, it, it's well, not like you're like waiting, you know, checking your watch. It goes pretty fast. Yeah, it's pretty quick, but there's enough time to. To me, there was enough time to like think, oh, this wasn't like keep it downrange or something like that, because sometimes the flintlock would. I don't think we ever had like a really really long hang fire on a flintlock, but there were some that it was like a second or like a second and a half. Well, and sometimes the frizzin, which is what the uh, flint strikes, doesn't ignite. And you have to kind of wipe it off and start again. Although, if I remember correctly, Jonathan Ferguson from the Royal Armories said that when he fired originals, um, that 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 didn't happen as often. So maybe and it's a, a, a moving backwards in evolution when we make repros. Well, and that's that's been described to me by other people because Gary, who was like the guy lending all these to us, he said that too because he shoots originals and repros. And both he and Jonathan described like 
very sure of themselves, original flintlocks that they fired ignite much more reliably than the modern repros. Yeah. So that's a, I don't know how we begin to look into that one, but that's something. Well, we find some originals. And it's important to note, and this is why it was such a unique experience for us, is that flintlocks are really the beginning of the repro market. And they're also federally not firearms because of the ignition systems. But part of the issue with the repro market in, is that a lot of it's imported from Europe. And I remember talking to Stefano Petrozzoli about why they're not making a match lock, because how cool would that be? And there's some wording in their laws that say you have to, when making reproduction, you have to stick by the original design. And I guess some match locks by their original design utilize bamboo, and that's just not safe in a 21st century audience. And so the original designs, you know, the not perfected designs of that technology, you know, aren't the greatest and not the safest. And so in order for them to make those, it's very questionable. So they don't. And so when you're dealing with somebody who has a repro hand cannon, has a repro match lock, has a repro wheel lock, you're dealing with it much more on the individual level in the United States. And sometimes well, there's parts kits for some of these things. Sometimes it's somebody actually building it for you. Right. And so it's a lot harder to get those technologies to fire. Yeah. And yeah, the flintlocks are really common and that satisfies most people's need is like, well, most people don't actually have that big of a desire to go shoot a flintlock. <laughs> I don't agree with you because Colonial Williamsburg has a firing range. It's incredibly yeah, popular. So, but of the people that have a desire to suit, to, to fire a so-called like quote unquote, a primitive ignition system, the flintlock covers most of that experience, although it is a very different experience from the rest of them. Like once you actually dive into it, it's a different experience. And it goes into why all of these, I, I said centerfire is boring, but if I shoot lots of centerfire guns. I enjoy shooting those. It's because these are like, there's a level of excitement shooting these. There's the, will it actually ignite this time? Will it there's light my the, hair on fire? Will it light your hair on fire? Will there be a match cord flying around to who knows where there's a big cloud of like fire and smoke in your face when you fire a flintlock like you and really any of these that you fire where your like cheek is on the stock the wheel lock pistol we were holding out away from us so you didn't feel the heat as much but like you fire a flintlock like a musket you feel the heat and the smoke come off that uh you know the priming pan igniting so yeah. it's it's much more recommend. of an experience I would recommend if you ever get the opportunity, make sure you have someone with you to take slow-mo video because uh, you can do that on your iPhone because it is really, really neat. It's a great memento to have. Yeah. And for the record, we yeah. shot everything that day. Like we shot everything from a hand cannon to um, a full auto M16. So yeah. we had a, this was all compared together and you can say like and full auto- Oh, you were just going from earliest to latest. Yeah, I was just going earliest to latest and skipping. But yeah. it's really sad. The one thing I was a little bit sad about is like when we did all this high speed footage, like we still got to show how the guns worked. But once you got to like past the percussion era, like everything was just like this barely little whiff of like when the hammer or the firing pin struck the primer that you could see. And it was like, that's uh, that was kind of a letdown after watching like this 
I don't know, event of a wheel lock igniting. So which one was your favorite, Danny? Mm, it's between the hand cannon and the wheel lock for me. And I'm going to say ooh, wheel lock. See, and I found the wheel lock to be the most disappointing. It was the coolest to look at on camera, but when firing it, to me, it was the most disappointing. Also, fun fact about the wheel lock is a lot of people shoot them sideways. I still don't know. If Matthew I knew, was like, I don't know us. if I believe that, but they did make us shoot them sideways to some extent. We did. Extent. We tried. Um, and I was worried it was going to fly out of my hand, but I was pleasantly surprised that that pistol grip you know kept it kept it rolling but to me it was really cool but at the same time it was cooler when i saw it on camera but my favorite which i think has already been kind of revealed was the match lock and it was the reason it was fun for me was because it's so different from anything i fired and it was powerful but i was surprised actually remember i had to fire it was so long that i fired it on a makeshift stick which was oh, really yeah, they had like camera a, equipment with a bean bag. <laughs> and I think they made um, me hold it out. And that gun was heavy. <laughs> that gun was so, yeah, they did make you hold it out. Um, and so it was funny because on the slow-mo, I enjoyed shooting it. I was very impressed by my ability to maintain control of it, but I leaned forward a lot. But what was funny was I felt pretty cool. And then we watched it on slow-mo for my video. It didn't get, it was, you know, didn't get applied to the videos in the museum. I was just there for funsies. And so what was, you know, interesting about that, it was, it looked like in slow-mo that the stock just was like pushing me out of the yeah. way. And then I like slowly came back and, and I was like, wow, I didn't even, I didn't realize it. Cause so much with modern guns, when you watch the slow-mo, it's this quick, you know, move. Whereas the match like, straight up just like shoved me backwards. And then I just pushed my way back <laughs> into a firing position afterwards, which just cracked me up. <laughs> well, and that was true for me too. Cause like I fired all these. And so I had to sit on like, to get everything right for the camera height, and all this stuff they had me like on a stool at an angle and then i would like sit forward on the stool to get my spot right and then you know i mean technically i'm firing seated but it was kind of awkward and it's all these different guns and i was like i felt pretty good after firing each one of like all right i i maintained pretty good control of that or like this is a big awkward match lock like i fired it i kept it in my shoulder like i did great and then we watch it in slow-mo and then you can like see me like watching yourself flinch in slow motion is like the biggest discouragement. Commemorating it forever in the uh, Cody Firearms Museum because you insisted to be the model for that. I am glad I did, but I've definitely heard people in the galleries comment on it. As I walk yeah. past, I'm like, oh. and, you should, and the thing is, is you're so, well, that was the other issue with the day was that you were so tall. Right. Yeah. So that's why I had to be on this. I couldn't just like stand and shoot this thing. I had to like squat onto the stool and all this other stuff. And yeah. Yeah. So final question. If you could pick anything pre 1800s to shoot that we didn't shoot, if you had the opportunity, what would it be? Bombard. But it would probably just be like a hand cannon, but you'd be standing behind it. No, I'm thinking like the big artillery pieces like that they used to knock down at the walls of Constantinople. You said anything. That's true. I think my... If I, oh, sorry. A, sorry. Sorry, sorry, sorry. No, no, um, go ahead. 
where you're really going with this question, I want to shoot like a Michelet and see if it's any different from, or a snap hands and see if they're any different from shooting flintlock. And see, I thought about that, but then I figured it was probably anticlimactic. And so I would like to shoot um, either a complicated repeater, like that Earl of Meath gun we have, where you actually have to rotate the barrels, or a, like a Lorenzoni magazine type, because I'm just curious, or a belt and fusel, because they, there's questions as to whether they actually ever make them. And so I think I'd want to fire something with an early repeating mechanism, just to see what the heck that does does it jam a lot you know what we're where you know where is it different from firing a single shot other than the fact that it's not a single shot like does it feel different does it jam how fast does it go so i think that would be my choice not that that's, you that's a really good choice i think i'd be willing to shoot one of those like stack charge guns just to see do um, they all go off at once inadvertently right i don't think i'd fire the porter <laughs> um nope but or the Cochrane. I, I really like your choice. Or like, yeah, like the, the Lorenzoni would be a good one. Or, um, I mean, we have that German repeater from 1683. That would be interesting. Organ gun. Or the organ gun. That would be, I mean, there's tons of interesting ones we could think of. I really still want to know what's going on with a fire lance. Everybody talks about them. What's going on with, what's up with that? Yeah. <laughs> so... If anyone listening wants to make us any of those firearms and we look into your background and actually trust you to do that, call us up because we will film it and we're more than happy to embarrass ourselves because this is not a professional podcast. There it is. (laughs) Talk to you guys next week. See ya.